From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. No one has any position on anything. No what one has mean? opinions because what you're I trying have lots to of do. Positions on no, 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 no. But you're trying to strike some balance. We here's the electorate. They have kind of opinions, the sort of masses. Here I am. I try to figure out where they are. What if they're trying to figure out where you are? Hello, welcome to the Clan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a show that can benefit from a little bit of backstory. So my guest today is Matt Brunig, the founder of the People's Policy Project, which is a left-wing policy think tank. And Matt's a Medicare for All supporter, like in the, the kind of pure way, and is a very aggressive interlocutor online, I would say. Um, and he and I go back and forth on this question sometimes that really boils down to how should you think about the political constraints around healthcare policy? Um, like Matt, I support something probably not my, – my ideal is probably not all the way to Medicare for All as you'll hear in this podcast. But I support something that is very, very, very far from what we have now, a pretty fundamental restructuring of the system. But part of what enters into my calculus is, are these polls and this history of healthcare where ambitious reforms tend to fail and that when you poll, um, you will see things like people – Support Medicare that you can buy into at 71%, but if you say it's going to abolish private insurance, it falls to 41%. If you say it increases middle class taxes, it'll fall into the 30s. And because I'm always very concerned that the American political system is very hard to get anything through and it's very important to get things through to help people, that you should that you should treat those to some degree as constraints, maybe movable on the margins, but constraints. And Matt doesn't uh, agree with that. He, I think, often feels the discourse um, – produced on this by people like me, he would call it as dishonest. Uh, and so we've been going back and forth on this a bit and I think mostly talking past each other. So I thought it was good for us to actually sit down in the podcast format and talk to each other. And I think it was good. I'm not sure we came to agreement on any of the the major things that, that divide us, but I think at the very least, we were able to sort of respond to each other and, and have a more uh, like more clarifying debate. So I appreciate him being here. I appreciate all of you being here. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Matt Brunig. Matt Brunig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start with this. What is your explanation for why America, uh, alone among advanced economies, doesn't have a national universal healthcare system despite decades of reformers trying? Well, I'm not. I'm not a historian, uh, you know. So I can I can sort of uh, rehash the the ordinary uh, 
you know, thing about, uh, oh, we got onto employer insurance because of the war and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, that, that's about all I have. I mean, and then sort of that reform obviously has been made difficult by um, moneyed interests and conservative politics in the U.S. But but it seems to me that you must have a theory of what has been the blockage specifically in America. I mean, a lot of a lot of how people think about healthcare sort of emerges out of their theories for why the past in this country has gone the way it has. Um, do, is, is there sort of really, really sort of nothing that you draw from there? Yeah, not really. I'm, I'm not really a history guy. I'm more of a you know, abstract policy guy, and, and before that, an abstract philosophy guy. Um, so, like I said, I mean, all I could really do is sort of repeat what I've read about the history of it. Um, and then, you know, in general, say, oh, you know, we haven't won. The left hasn't won, so we haven't been able to implement implement our stuff. I guess to be, to be fair, or maybe unfair to historians, I think a lot of them are just saying what they've read, too. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a human centipede aspect to a lot of the discourse on this. <laughs> I had not thought to to describe it quite that way. <laughs> Let's go here then. If private health insurance feels like such a nightmare to people, why don't they want it replaced when you ask them? Well, I think the polling is a little bit uh, confusing on this. You know, it is a complicated issue, and I'm not sure that uh, sort of one sentence or two sentence uh, questions really really get at it. You know, so if you, if you ask people, I mean, we've seen a lot of polls. I'm sure you've seen now what dozens of them where people are trying to ask about switching to Medicare for all with different explanations of what Medicare for all is. There was one that I thought was the most interesting, obviously, for for my position, which was the morning consult poll that came out, I think, a month ago or so, in which they polled three questions. The one question was, do you support Medicare for all? No explanation of what it is. The second is, do you support Medicare for all, which gets rid of private insurance? And then the third is, do you support Medicare for all, which gets rid of private insurance, but you also get to keep your doctors? And, you know, Medicare for all polled okay. The one that just said get rid of private insurance, like that modifier went way down when you added, but you get to keep your doctors. That one actually polled higher than Medicare for all with no explanation um, beside it. So obviously framing effects are going to be a big, a big part of, of how anyone understands, you know, what's being asked of them. So that's a, that, I agree with you that framing effects can matter a lot in polling, but in terms of the question of, if you ask people, do they want private insurance replaced? They say no. I mean, that question has been asked over and over and over again. And it's a continuous problem for people like me, um, and for that matter, like you, who want to reform the system in one direction or another. Um, even if you and I, I think, probably disagree a little bit on end state, I think both of us would like to build something new in the place of what we have now. But when you ask people, um, they they tend to say, like, no, please, please don't do that. And then when you put it to them in other ways, because we can talk about polling, but Vermont tried to do it through the legislative system. It failed. Colorado put it on the ballot. Eighty percent of people voted against it. There's a, a kind of continuous resistance to transformative change. And it's a, it's, it's a hard question for those of us who look at the system and say, this looks terrible. Like, why do you want something new? But uh, like finding an answer to why that is seems important to me. So, 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 what's yours? Well, I mean, again, I, I think for instance, I, I haven't seen the polls that just specifically say, "Do you want private insurance or not?" But even that question, I feel like, is not fully explained. You know, like if you were to ask someone, if you were to describe the system in its totality, even in a few sentences, to kind of highlight some of the negative parts, like, um, "Do you uh, want to keep a system in which uh, you get to have private insurance?" unless your boss doesn't want you to have it um, and takes it away from you. Like, is that the system you want? I think that would pull really badly, right? So, I mean, there's a communications aspect to it 
Uh, do people understand that their private insurance gets taken away frequently? Are people over-optimistic? That seems to be a pretty common thing in, in American politics. You poll people, how many, you know, what percent of people think they're going to be rich at some point in their life? A large number of people, way more than we know, will actually be rich. So there's an optimism aspect to it that I think is 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 maybe hard to hard to 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 get around. But I don't think if you ask people about the current system, if they would that they would say they like it. And I think when you present single payer, there's obviously some resistance there as well. So I don't know that you can like resolve and say like, oh yes, this is what people want. It seems like people have negative sentiments about all of these things. No, I don't think you can ever say this is what people want, which is frustrating. Um, what, it, what it does seem to me to be true in healthcare and in a lot of spaces is people end up having, either people end up having a status quo bias um, or the system ends up having a status quo bias with a sort of like canonical approach to that being that minorities who feel they'll lose something organize more intensively than diffuse majorities who might gain something. But that's why I ask you about some of these other efforts. I mean, again, Vermont just tried this a couple of years ago and it fell apart under the financing question and Colorado put it on the ballot and people said no. So I feel like there's an, an effort to often say, well, look, polls, you have polling effects and framing effects and who knows. But it's sort of a mixture of polling offering, I think, reasonably consistent answers uh, that people don't like some of the key features that you would need to do to move towards a full single payer system. And then the lived experience of reformers sort of going back to Truman in 1948, but then through a lot of different state efforts too, finding that when you put this to people, the combination of risk aversion and industry opposition ends up being something that is insufferable given the uh, like the institutional difficulty of passing things already in the American political system. And that needs to be taken into account in the analysis. I mean, my experience of you is that when people do try to take that into account in the analysis, you get very frustrated at them. So I think what I'm trying to draw out here is like, what is your alternative theory of this? Like, what what is leading you to a different conclusion than someone like me is reaching? I, I wouldn't say I get frustrated with people. I, I just, I don't really care. I mean, like fundamentally, where I'm a policy guy. I'm making a policy argument. We're trying to get politics swung in our direction. There's a certain group of people, and this is especially true of people in D.C. and then sort of centrist D.C. establishments who think their job is to uh, just sort of constantly, you know, hold their hold their uh, finger to the wind and decide this is where the people are at. And then there are people who are trying to push. And that's what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm trying to push people in the direction of good policy. So I don't really like at the end of the day care like whether people are here currently or not. Um, and, and what I guess frustrates me is the slippage between people who want to talk about policy, talk about whether this does this or that, right? Does Medicare for all take your insurance away or does employer-sponsored insurance take your insurance away? They slip between that and then they retreat into some politics, which basically amounts to, you know, nothing ever gets done in America. And it's like, okay, that's, you know, thanks. Like, yeah, almost everything anyone proposes is not going to succeed. So, I mean, What's the point? I mean, it, it, it ends up to me just reading of like an indictment of futility, like just get out of the game. Why are you even doing politics? America's not set up to allow anything to change. So just just go do something else, man. So I think this is a I think this is like a useful a useful space here because I see it exactly the opposite way. Um, I also like to be a policy guy and have written like endless pieces that are purely about policy. But I also am interested in policy because I want people's lives to be better. I want people to have health insurance. Um, in this case. Um, and if you do policy with absolutely no regard for it, political institutions or politics or where public opinion is, 
then what you're doing is just having a fun debaters club. And I like fun debaters clubs. Like uh, like half of these podcasts are about things that are way outside of the, the norm of what may or may not happen. But there isn't like good policy isn't policy that will get annihilated as soon as it goes into the political system. And particularly when we're in a period where people are arguing about or trying to assess within perfect information, but trying to assess, well, what is the plan that people should run on? What is the plan that might work when somebody is actually president and is trying to get it done? The idea that you would take politics out of that equation, it just seems baffling to me. It's like taking the politics out of politics. Well, then then to me, it's like, well, what are you doing? Are you are do you, do you just want people to like retweet you or are you actually trying to get people health insurance? No, it's the exact opposite. So let's <laughs> let's suppose everyone let's suppose everyone took the Ezra Klein position. Then there literally is no politics. No one has any position on anything. No what one has mean? opinions because what you're I trying have lots to of do. Positions on things. No, 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 no. But you're trying to strike some balance. We here's the electorate. They have kind of opinions of sort of masses. Here I am. I try to figure out where they are. What if they're trying to figure out where you are? What if everyone else is trying to figure out where everyone else is? There's, a, you know, there's an ultimately a kind of like uh, recursive element to it, which completely annihilates all politics. Someone somewhere has to have an opinion and has to push that opinion. That's the only way anything changes. Just, just yes, yesterday. The majority, we, we had another co-sponsor on Medicare for All in the House. This is the first time the majority of Democrats in the House have co-sponsored Medicare for All, as far as I understand. That would not have happened five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago. I know this because in 2008, I, I worked on the Ralph Nader campaign. He ran on single-payer health care. After that campaign ended, there was a little activist group that I was somewhat a part of that was called like single-payer now. We tried to push during that um, you know, 2008 you know, health reform, that area, push them. They were, you know, interrupt uh, congressional hearings and that sort of thing. Oh, this can't be done. We can't even get, you know, five, 10 people to support it. Now we have the majority of the Democrats supporting it. Somewhere there has to be an input in the system that creates what is politically possible, right? And if everyone is just sitting here being like, oh, I'm trying to cut the 50th percentile, cut the 50th percentile, then no one's defining what the 50th percentile is. And so that that's what the left's purpose is. And Separate from that, I mean, even if you don't like Medicare for all, or you think that's never going to happen. Where is the right wing of the Democratic Party right now? Isn't the right wing of the Democratic Party right now, at least as represented in the presidential election, a public option that goes and competes in every single market? Where was that four years ago? I remember public options for the exchanges, which got Im immediately annihilated a tiny little market of 11 million people. Now we've got the front rudder right wing Democrat Biden supporting public option in every single market. That does not happen without any of the stuff that we're doing at People's Policy Project or Bernie Sanders or anyone on the left. So, you know, I agree with a lot of that, actually. I mean, this is to me one of the one of the things that is odd is this like very sharp attempt to draw binaries between different things. So like my work is a little bit weird in that it has dimensions where I'm trying to argue people into positions and then also dimensions where I'm just trying to understand the positions different political players, institutions um, and uh, groups hold. So to some degree, like a lot of people, and I think like you at times, although not always admitted, I'm a little bit shifting between trying to understand a system and then trying to influence it. But like I've been arguing for public options for a long time and have been arguing for pretty trying to move the Democratic Party in a particular position on this and also trying to move everybody towards a recognition that political institutions need to be taken seriously first and foremost. I mean, I think you you know me beating the drum on this for a long time, but 
the idea that you have to first have an opinion on getting rid of the filibuster and an opinion on how to make majoritarian positions actually work in American politics. So I don't buy the idea that I somehow operate outside of the realm of persuasion or that anybody does in this case. Now, like your point, which is well taken, is you need people running at different points in the system, right? You want some people who are pushing way outside of the boundaries because they're trying to move the, the, the window over. You want some people like trying to understand some of the, what the boundaries are. But I do think that there's a balance to be struck and it is worth trying to strike it between where you want to go and where you think people will let you go. I mean, certainly some amount of politics is a interaction between what leaders want to do and other kinds of interest group influencers want to do, including people sort of in the media or the policy think tank space and what people think the country is ready for. And having – there sometimes seems to me to be an attempt to reframe that as somehow dirty, as somehow not, not a true piece of politics or maybe to put it a different way, a belief that public opinion is almost infinitely malleable and leadable. It, it's like it's a constraint that is only a constraint if people imagine it to be so. And one of the reasons I began this conversation with you asking you about your view of the past is that a lot of people in my position in this uh, who, who sort of like come to the conclusions I do, part of it is because of this view of the past, that what we've seen happen in past efforts at reform have told us something about public opinion. And that's something is something valuable that needs to be learned because the chance of failure here is very real. I mean, to go back to something you were saying a minute ago, it's very much not my view that saying most things fail means you shouldn't try. But saying most things fail, uh, which is true, is saying that you need to be very alert to the possibility of failure and trying to figure out ways to maximize your chance of success. That seems almost axiomatic to me, but it, it seems to also often be taken as somehow like grubby <laughs> um, but, but, but by people on your side of the debate, which just seems odd to me because like everybody wants people to get better health insurance here. Like this seems to be an argument worth having. I mean, I, different people obviously cut this in different ways. I think part of the frustration comes in um, I mean, separate from the question of why are you why are you advocating an inferior policy? That's you know, like take Biden Care for example. He leaves three percent of people uninsured. That is, if you if you believe the normal elasticities on that, that's going to kill one hundred twenty five thousand people in the first ten years of enactment from uninsurance. Like, there's a ghoulish aspect to it that's not admitted uh, on on just sort of you know people are advocating inferior policies. But the thing that gets me personally, this is separate from a lot of other people on the left, but personally as a sort of like left wonk, is when you're dealing with people who are making deceptive arguments, people who are lying on the center in order to steer it towards their worst moderate options. And this is what you get with single payer over and over and over again. We just watched the debate, uh, you know, the last two days of the debate, and there was this thing, you know, Oh, they're using Republican talking points that that tend to be like this sort of top level like criticism. But like what they're actually saying is these people are lying to you about what Medicare for all is going to look like because they're trying to imply to you that's going to be a lot more costly for you. In fact, the plans that exist are going to be less costly for you. And so why, why do I even have to contend with this? I thought you're on my side and you're, you're advocating for moderation for political practicality reasons, but you're actually lying about my policy. That's actually better than yours. So what's going on here? On some level, you either don't actually think my policy is better than yours and you're just kind of making a pragmatic, you know, uh, concession to the center or you do think that, in which case you're a complete asshole who's just like completely lying about my program. You know what I mean? So I'm not sure at this point if you're talking to me or John Delaney. It's not just Delaney. I mean, the, the, one, that set, <laughs> the one that set me off about you was the idea that 
these, uh, you know, uh, non-Medicare for all plans that they let you keep your existing insurance. That is the, that's the thing that, that they've been pushing against Medicare for all forever. Oh, it's going to cause 150 million people to come off their employer plans. And I don't, I don't want to say that you were like intentionally lying. I think there was a human centipede element of that because when you look at the press release, they use the same sort of language. But that is just not a good argument against single payer, not a fair argument against single payer to talk about how it takes away your employer insurance without also talking about how the alternative moderate plans, you're losing your employer insurance all the time, all the time. Like 28% of people are changing their employer insurance every year, oftentimes because they're losing their job, they're quitting. 60 million people separate from their job every year. Like that is not a fair move. And that is the primary move that's used against single payer. My disagreement with you on this is that you and I both agree that one, the status quo is really bad. And like I spend a lot of my time writing about and have run organizations that I think have spent a lot of their time writing about how the status quo is really bad. One of the things that you do in this argument as a move is you say there's an argument people are making against you when it's not an argument people are making against you. It's an argument. It's not even an argument. It is a reflection of the way something is just going to work and be experienced. So to me, what you're doing is redefining words in a slightly strange way. So if I say to you that like in my plan, you can like keep what you have. I'm not saying that I'm protecting you from exigent circumstances outside the context of what is going on, of like what I am doing. And to write that as analogous to my plan does take what you have, like it will like it will move you and you will know that is coming and you will be upset about that and you will potentially destroy my plan because of that. Like it's totally fair, I think, to then say, hey, you're this would still be better. Like it would be better because we have insurance churn. It would be better because the system as it currently exists is unstable. Like a lot of the people who are trying to come up with alternatives here, in fact, the what kicked off your and my debate here is that um, I was writing about a plan called Medicare Extra from the Center for American Progress, which is a very large and very disruptive also uh, change in the healthcare system, which would bring universal coverage. But one thing it doesn't do is move people forcibly from their employer-based insurance over to Medicare. Now, your point in that is that your employer can still change their insurance, and like that's bad, and fair enough. I think that's a reasonable point. Yeah, and in their model, the, a lot of them do. Well, some of them do. But um, but the, the idea that you're going to somehow talk people out of being afraid that the government is going to take what they have and put them on something new, it feels to me like you're trying to dodge the objections people have, not actually answer them. And like that may be like a reasonable way to like run an argument with me, but it's going to not be good for you in the long run to get what you want done done. You're talking yourself out of people's genuine fears in a way I don't, I don't, I don't see where you think it's going to get you. No. So Again, I, I hate to say, but that's the exact opposite situation, right? I'm not trying to say that telling people, hey, odds are in the next four years, you're going to lose your employer plan. You're not going to want to, but you're going to because 60 million people separate from their job every year. I'm not saying that if you explain that to people, that's going to work. People, they have bizarre, contradictory opinions. It's hard to figure out what, what exactly they're worried about. Maybe they just have some knee-jerk status quo bias. I'm not saying it's going to work like that. But I'm saying in the discourse, when you have someone like you who's supposed to be talking to masses of people, millions of people, you got to cut them straight because you're part of the system as well. There's like an endogeneity aspect to it where if Ezra Klein and Jonathan Chade and Paul Krugman all repeat this line, which is not really true, that at some point that has to have some impact. 
And you're supposed to have a responsibility not to do that. So if we take the phrase, you know, quite literally, if you like your insurance, you can keep it. That is not true. And there's a very simple way to correct that phrase. So I'm not saying you need to go spend paragraphs talking about insurance turn. Just change it to this. If your boss likes your insurance, he can keep it for you. If not, he can take it from you. That's it. Is that not a more accurate description of what's being proposed? Well, I think the phrase that a lot of people use typically um, and that I often use is that this plan won't take what you have from you. Um, I don't really agree with the way you're cutting the language here, but I also don't. It's, I don't have a huge investment in it one way or the other. I think, though, that you're ending up in a place here where the way that you want to tell people the insurance system is working for them is not the way that they understand it to be working for them. And that's why earlier I asked you the question, like, what is your explanation for if the insurance system is so chaotic and it is so terrible, why people, when asked, do not want to have it replaced? Because like, what you think of that bears very heavily on the discussion we're having right now. Like, I'll, gi I'll give you an example of this um, that I think maybe makes it a little bit clearer. After the Affordable Care Act passed, this was a line that Barack Obama used all the time. And, you know, that if you like your health insurance, you can keep it. And the Affordable Care Act was designed in contrast to a lot of other health care plans to try to make that true from the perspective of the plan. So whereas Clinton care plan in 1994 or whereas like the Wyden Bennett plan or whereas single payer or Medicare for all plans really did sort of upend the system and put people in something else, something that I often think would be better, but nevertheless, something else. That plan, you know, really only cut around the edges of the system. But in the end, it did cancel directly 3 million, 4 million plans. And there was a huge political backlash to this. It was a, a huge problem for the Obama administration. And there was this backlash in which people felt something different was happening to them than the thing that is happening to them all the time. They felt that somebody was taking something from them all at once in a way that wasn't happening all the time. And they organized about it and they were angry about it. And so what people are trying to say in, in, in this language is this plan will not do that to you. There is a thing you are afraid of having happen that the, you're afraid the government is going to do it to you. And this plan will not do that to you. Now, maybe there's simpler ways to say it. But denying that it's something people want to hear doesn't seem like a good, not just a good strategy. It seems like a way of um, of like not even talking to them anymore. No, no. So I, I, I fully believe people want to hear it, but it's a lie. That's the problem. That the let's government take, won't take the thing no, no, you Let's take have? the Obama example, right? How many people lost their plans in the sense that because of the reform relative to the baseline, their plan changed, right? You say three, four million. If I were to go out to if you, Vox, Vox has a lot of money. Let's do a poll at Vox and say, ask people, did you lose your plan because of Obamacare? Do you, th I mean, 3 million people is what, 1%? Do you think we would get, how much, what do you think? 20, 30, 40%? No, we, this, this part we're not arguing about. I'm asking no, no, you but, why but, they no, had no, a different experience but, but of this that. But this is, this is my argument, right? Is when he said you're not going to lose your plan and then after Obamacare was implemented, 20, 30, 40 million people lost their plan literally that year, they went, holy shit, this is because of Obamacare. And you could come to them and be like, oh, no, you don't understand. When I said you're not going to lose your plan, what I meant is relative to a counterfactual. You will still, like, in the normal sense of the system, completely get savaged all the time and lose your plan, like, you know, just fucking willy-nilly. But that's not what I was talking about. I don't think people read that right. I actually think that within the sort of, again, the human centipede of the discourse, you guys have convinced yourself that if you like your plan, you can keep it, that regular people understand that to mean 
you can still be on the same insurance track within your baseline, which means losing your plan every few years involuntarily and oftentimes losing it into uninsurance. That's what that's what regular people understand that phrase to mean. I don't think regular people understand that phrase to, to mean that, which is why the phrase is so potent, because they look at it and they go, wow, this gives me security. And to bring this back to single payer, I am not bringing this argument up in a purely defensive posture. I'm actually trying to bring it up in, in, an, in an argument for single-payer posture because what you can say about single-payer, which you can't say about any of these other plans, is you will never lose your insurance again. You can't say that about anything else. But that's what that phrase, I think, is tapping into, is the idea, oh, I get to keep. I don't have to lose things anymore. Single-payer is the only one that promises that. Let me half agree with you. I think that one of the difficult things in healthcare reform is that any reform you pass, there is a tendency to take ownership of the system, whether or not you had intended to take ownership of that part of the system or not. And so after you pass a reform, if people believe that they were part of that reform, the things that happen afterwards get blamed on you. Um, I don't actually think the particular example you're giving here is correct because we know when the backlash to those plan cancellations happened, and they happened when the plan cancellations happened through Obamacare. They didn't just happen all the time. Um, so I don't, I don't really buy the the analogy you're offering. But that said, I do think you saw a lot of people saying, "Hey, like you passed Obamacare, and my employer-based premium still went up," or you passed Obamacare, and like this other bad thing happened. So I don't think you're actually wrong to say that whenever you sort of offer these big picture promises that you're going to stabilize the system and then the system remains unstable, you get into trouble. Um, something you did say there, though, that I do think bears on this conversation is that you can only do this in one way. And I think that one of the debates people are having right now, certainly the debate that we were having around this Medicare extra bill, is there are a lot of ways to create a universal system. Um, I mean, we have them in the UK and Canada and the Netherlands and Germany and Japan and France and, and all kinds of places. And some of them keep private insurance and some of them don't. Some of them let you choose between what your employer is currently giving you and, you know, the, the public plan, um, which is how Medicare Extra would work. So I don't actually think it's true that the only way to be assured that you won't lose things is um, single payer. And two, one of the things that is hiding within some of this debate we're having about insurance churn is that there's insurance churn people really don't like. Um, they lost their job and they lost their health insurance, or their employer moved to a new plan that has much higher deductibles. And then there was insurance churn that people understand as choice. So they were in Medicare and they decided to move into Medicare Advantage because they thought Medicare Advantage had a better um, benefit package for them. And they, a lot of people want to keep that choice, um, keep that ability to have what they have, at least for now, um, uh, you know, barring someone taking it from them, but also be able to like be uh, assured that if they don't like what they have, they can make a move. And so some of these other plans like Medicare Extra, which actually are universal, keep some of that um, assurance inside the system. And I'm curious why you think that's a bad policy, because I don't like the status quo, but it's not obvious to me that it would be better to only have one plan people can have, particularly given the problems in our system of government, as opposed to at least having some um, choice so that if something was going wrong, people had escape hatches and release valves. Yeah. So, I mean, let me push back on, uh, initially on the idea that there is a significant amount of voluntary churn. I, I, I just, you know, you look at why people churn off and uh, turn on and off of their insurance plan and overwhelmingly, it doesn't appear to be voluntary, right? 
60 million people separate from their job. I suppose some small fraction of them might have been like, I want to go to that job because of the health care. But in, in most cases, it's people, oh, they, I got a promotion. Oh, shit, now I got to change my plan, et cetera, et cetera, right? Or people who moved, right? You moved, recently moved to California. I don't know if you had to change your plan for that, but it happens to a lot of people. I, you know, and when they move, they, you know, maybe they don't want to change their plan, but, uh, you know, I got to do it. Um, we could go on and on, right? I mean, people. Well, I think I think in the employer market, you have a lot of involuntary changing, and in the Medicare market, which is in some ways a very direct analogy to the kinds of single payer markets we're looking at, you have more voluntary changing. Yeah, well, because in Medicare, you know, the employers out out of the you know the labor market is separated from it, right? But but I think it's relevant that in Medicare, people like to make these decisions. That's sort of what that's a cut I'm making. Look, like. If I, 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 one thing I don't want to be doing here is defending the employer-based market. Like my thing forever has been that we shouldn't have an employer-based market. I hate it. I think it is the central sin of American healthcare. And any way that somebody can convince me that we can actually get rid of it, I will almost be for. Like literally all of them. So I don't like the employer-based market. We agree on that. But I, I do want to cut that question away from the issue of choice, which it does seem to me both looking domestically at Medicare and internationally at a number of other healthcare systems. People do like the feeling that if they want to move into something else because this is going badly or because some other politician got elected and changed the, the public insurance plan, that they can. And I'm curious why you think on a policy level that isn't something they should be able to do. Well, so as a so as a general matter, I mean, again, let me push back on the premise. I don't know. I don't believe that people on Medicare really like navigating these Medicare Advantage markets. They do it because it provides a more streamlined plan than having to get A, B, and D and Medigap and some supplementary benefits. You know, if that were brought into a public plan, I I, I suspect people wouldn't want to do that sort of thing, right? So I don't know that you can like analogize it directly. In general, right, the reason why if you're going to have a really nice, robust public plan that everyone is enrolled in, the reason why you don't then want to allow for the creation of duplicative private insurance is because that tends to lead to this two-tiering in which only rich people, you know, defined as the top 20%, are able to really buy these duplicative uh, private plans. And then really the reason they buy the plan is to jump in line. And that's not really what we're about. I'm not about creating a system in which, oh, we, we preserve choice, by which I mean rich people can get onto plans to jump the line in front of lower class and middle class people who can't afford these kinds of duplicative plans, right? That's the rationale behind it. So that argument has an assume an ideal political system dimension to it. So to, to, to work it backwards, the, the point you just made, which I think has some validity to it, is that people often choose into Medicare Advantage because they look at the Medicare benefit package and they feel that it's not good enough or it is um, non-streamlined in some way or whatever. They don't like it for some reason and they think Medicare Advantage can give them something better. So what you're saying there is that within our system of government, right, the one we have been operating within forever, we have this quite popular uh, public insurance plan. But the problem with it is that our system of government has done a bad job updating the benefits over time. And sometimes when it does update them, it updates them in a weird way. So forever, Medicare did not offer prescription drug coverage. Now it does under Part D, but Part D doesn't work like the rest of Medicare because it got passed by George W. Bush and it was kind of a mess and it works okay. But you know, maybe you don't want to do it that way. You want everything integrated into Medicare Advantage. And that's actually exactly my point that – it, it is true that if I could assume a political system where people would make all the decisions I want them to make, I don't really see a huge reason for duplicative insurance. Um, 
but I can't. Uh, I see very little reason to be, have full trust that good decisions will always be made or that benefit packages will be modernized at the scale and speed that I think they should be modernized or that Republicans will not get into power and then suddenly turn, you know, they will begin front-loading cost-sharing to make Medicare more like a HSA system or they'll try to put a, an, a work eligibility requirement on it or, you know, you can imagine a hundred shitty things that could happen. And so one of the, one of the arguments there is not that you want it because the system could be perfect and you need it in a system that is great, but that within realistically our system of government, things often aren't great. Again, like we keep calling this thing Medicare. We have this thing called Medicare. And inside this thing called Medicare, there's a growing market for private insurance plans, not because I think ideally there should be and not because I think Medicare has done everything in Medicare's power to be the best program possible so that you never have that problem. But because it doesn't work like that, we are oriented towards gridlock. We have all these issues. And to me, this is where you can't pull the politics out of policy. If you're saying that the entire healthcare system is going to be taken over by the federal government, and then you say, well, if you want to talk about how the federal government works, that's bringing politics into this. And like you're saying like you're going to infuse all health policy decision-making with politics. I'm actually not against that, but I just think it needs to be looked at realistically and the actual examples we have before us um, absorbed in a real way. Well, so, I mean, I, I do think the Medicare Advantage situation is, it it is instructive of what's going to happen when, or what could happen when right-wing gets in control, which is they're going to say, hey, um, these benefits we have, we don't want to grow them, but you know, there's a lot of rich people who would like to buy more, so we'll create this other option so that rich people can, can, can get some sort of uh, benefits on top of this and without having to grow the public plan. That's what, that's what the right wing is going to do, right? Medicare Advantage is, to my mind, right wing privatization of Medicare that is basically takes the position that we don't want to improve benefits for lower and middle class people, but we want to allow more affluent people who have the money available to buy these supplementary plans. We want to make it possible for them to do that. And that might happen. Right. And I don't know what to do about that. You really want to stop something like that from happening, though, because what happens inevitably is you have this two tier system. And that's what was, was already developed in the Medicare system. Right. If you're lower class, middle class, you can't afford these, um, you know, supplementary programs, then you're on the normal Medicare. And, and we've allowed this private system to emerge where we can keep allowing uh, people who, who want more benefits to pay for them. And then lower and middle class people get left out specifically because we've bifurcated this program. Like that's the whole argument against the duplication is you allow this two tiering to occur in which the lower and middle class can be left out and just be like, oh, too bad. Bye bye, guys. We've got this private plan where people who have money, the people we care about, can continue to get their benefits topped up and, you know, evolve over time. That's what I'm trying to avoid as a political matter. Is to say, bring all these people together. Because in your system, right, in which you say people are going to have choice and that sort of thing, right, lower class people are still going to be on Medicaid or Medicare or whatever the basic public option is going to be. Why would that they're, be they're, true? Assuming, assuming that the way a system works, which is the way all these proposals, to my knowledge, do work, you have what's fundamentally uh, like a guaranteed access to the Medicare plan or the sort of alternative like Medicare choice advantage, whatever you want to call it, plans. Um, you know, Kamala Harris has a version of this. The CAP has a version of this. The thing that you seem to be assuming in here is that the way all these plans are going to work is they're going to have some kind of top-up payment to them. That's the policy. Such that rich people can access them and others can't. 
that's not how they often work and not how they have to work. So again, I mean, one of the things that is striking to me here is that there tends to be, uh, well, like assume we can make the politics great in this direction, but we could not make it good in the other direction. There's a weird kind of circling in and out of when yes. you have political constraint here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, again, <laughs> that's what you're doing, right? Because we can go one way in here. We can just be like, what's the politics going to be? Well, the politics going to be nothing's going to pass. It's just going to be what it's going to be. Like that is, if you just want to be hardcore real politics, that's what you're going to do. Or you can go in on the other end and be like, what's the best policy? Well, clearly a unified single plan in which everyone has to buy in. No one can get supplemental, so no two-tiering, no duplication. That would be the better, from, from a kind of progressive left perspective. Then when you start bringing in the politics, what happens is the politics gets selectively applied, right? So you can come in and say, well, I don't know. If you look at the politics of how Medicare Advantage on, on you know, kind of came in, uh, the, you know, just naturally we had a decent public plan, but they didn't want to grow the benefits. So they created this second tier where you had to pay an extra premium. Not everyone could afford it, but some people could. And that sort of released the pressure, not for the lower middle class Medicare beneficiary, but for the upper class ones. And I go, well, that sucks. I don't want to do that. And you go, yeah, but you could imagine a system where you had a similar Medicare Advantage thing, but where everyone got the same amount that they could use on their Medicare Advantage plans and no one could like get an extra amount of money. And it's like you could imagine that. On the, on the flip side, you also could imagine a unified single payer plan where none of this was even talked about. Right. So either bring in the politics and be like, all right, you know, we're probably not going to get anything done. And if we do, what's going to end up happening is we're going to two tier with this duplicative private insurance where rich people can buy out and cut in line. Or don't bring it in at all and let's talk about policy. But it seems like, again, I mean, what you accuse me of, I, you know, and maybe this is the root of the frustration of the whole discussion, <laughs> I see you doing. You're like, oh, Medicare Choice doesn't have this two-tiering where rich people, it's like, well, that's what Medicare Advantage, that's what it became. So to me, so I, this is, I think, a fair expression of our sometimes uh, ability to talk past each other. To me, like the way I started this particular line of questioning was like, let's pull the politics out. Like, why shouldn't we have choice in the system? But yes. I think you're right that like no matter sort of what you do, the politics come back in. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, because it feels to me that you keep creating this binary between like you can be a hardcore real politics poli uh, person and say nothing will ever pass. Or you can say like, fuck all the politics. I'm going to do like what I think is the absolute like all the way best thing. And putting aside whatever disagreements we might have about the the all the way best thing to me, that's actually not a fair or useful description of the difference between trying to be real politics about it and not. So earlier in this conversation, I was asking you, um, you know, what is your explanation for why these processes and, and, and efforts have failed in America before? And you kind of said, look, I'm not a store and I don't have one. I was like, all right, well, what happened in Vermont and Colorado and these other places? And I'm like, yeah, you know, who knows? It's like these things are complicated, hard to look at the polls. One reason it is important to me to study the past and history of healthcare is that there are lessons, and they are lessons that do not say, "Hey, nothing will ever pass." Like go to like like give up, you know, go live in the woods. They're lessons that say, you know, at different times things do pass, and they're often not exactly the thing you would want to pass. But yeah, like the Colorado and Vermont efforts failed, but we've seen hybrid systems be expanded in a lot of different states. Um, we saw the Massachusetts Romney system. Vermont had the expansion of a hybrid system under Howard Dean. We've seen like different kinds of hybrid approaches in Hawaii and all kinds of different places in the country. And then they've laddered up nationally where we've continuously expanded healthcare incrementally in these, again, somewhat hybridized and, and to kind of root and branch reformers, very frustrating ways. Obamacare is one example of that. Medicare Part D is another. Medicare and Medicaid have their sort of like they weren't everybody, although they were, I think, quite big steps forward. And so the idea that there is no lesson 
drawing here, aside from, like, everything fails, so better do what you want, doesn't seem true to me at all. One of the reasons um, people like me tend to say, hey, look, like I might like to be all the way over here on this, but I think we want to do something that is less disruptive to the arrangements people currently have, or certainly something that feels less disruptive to the arrangements they currently have, is that historically those things have had a better chance of passage. And in a period where it is hard to pass anything, that it is worth trying to maximize your probability of success rather than saying, well, look, like you can either say you're being realistic about it and not try, or you can be fantastical about it and try because, like, who knows? Maybe it's all different this time. That does not seem like the the choice anybody needs to create uh, here. I mean, I don't know that I'd put it in those stark terms. When I used that in the, the last answer, it was meant in the context of our own debate, which seems to move from one or the other. Um, you know, in some contexts, you want to give this sort of abstract rationale, and then you want to come in and be like, oh, won't the politics disrupt that? I mean, if you want me to, like, I could give you a story of how Medicare for All passes. Yeah, like, give me a story. Okay, okay. so here we go. If you look at the American electorate, it's very much divided by age. Older people support more conservative politics. Um, we see this even in the primary. Uh, Biden leads among voters over the age of 50. Uh, among voters under the age of 50, he is behind Sanders and Warren in that order. Um, we saw this, of course, in the 2016 primary. We see this across party identification, you know, in general. Younger voters are more left-wing than uh, older voters. And we know from the social and political science research that uh, politics is uh, generationally imprinted um, to a significant degree. So what's going to happen is over the next, you know, 20, 30 years, a lot of old people will die and they will be replaced by, obviously, uh, upcoming young people who will have been generationally imprinted with this sort of politics. And, um, you know, we can push for Medicare for all and be ready, ready for that moment when it comes and, and things hits that, hit that tipping point. That could be one story you tell. You could tell another story about how we could uh, run into another depression or recession. You could uh, tell a story where we can, you know, successfully primary a lot of Democrats and get them out of the way. There are a lot of different stories you can tell. Um, but to just say, well, you know, what happened, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that's very much predictive of the future. I mean, I, that just seems ridiculous to me. I mean, even looking at countries that, you know, I mean, if, if you were to tell me uh, many years ago that, for instance, uh, you know, S Sweden was going to uh, privatize its school system based on, you know, 40 straight years of social democratic rule, I would have been like, you are absolutely out of your mind. And then they, they did it in the 90s. Um, you know, like these things happen. Um, so, you know, instead of trying to read the tea leaves and guess based on uh, historical, you know, moments, some of which have occurred now decades ago, uh, let's just, you know, be straightforward, advocate for what you want to advocate, and also recognize that in, in so doing, you actually help move the ball forward in very meaningful and helpful ways. If, you were, if, I, if I were to tell you the four years ago, the majority of the House Democrats would uh, endorse Medicare for all, I think you would have said that was, that was crazy. I don't think I would have, actually. I mean, I think four years ago, we had something like 100 some Democrats on Medicare for all. I don't think it was nearly that much. I mean, we'll have to look at the tape How many on people that, were on but... 676? I thought it was quite a bit. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. Um, I think that story is interesting, actually, and, and to explore it for a minute. Um, to me, there's an there's a question, which is always a tricky question in politics, of what time frame are you operating on? 
I think a huge, huge open question about American politics is what does this sort of younger generation grow into? So like one version of it is that the young generation is like much more left-wing um, than it has been in the recent past. And that's going to hold. And we're going to have a much more left-wing politics in 15 years because of the generational, uh, to be nice about it, transition that we're undergoing to undergo as, a, as an electorate. Um, another version, which we've seen at other times, right, think of like the generation in the 60s and 70s, uh, is that as young people get older, their politics change or something is going to change in the in the political atmosphere. And it's not going to be as left wing as you think. It might be more left wing than it was, but you're going to have a you're going to have a kind of like a reaction or a or a kind of it's like a dynamic system that, you know, the young are always a little bit more liberal than the than the old. Although I don't think it's literally true that they always are more liberal. And so I think it's a really like very very good question. Um, in terms of some of the question right now, which is like in this primary that is happening right now. Like, what can we say about public opinion and what can we say about the best plans and what can we say about what seems possible in, in American politics? That's where I, I think I do disagree. Like, I don't think we're just like groping around in the dark. I mean, for instance, the fact that on the debate stage, like every single Democrat who is from a purple or red state did not want to go all the way to, to Medicare for all. And it was um, the representatives from Massachusetts and Vermont who did was telling to me. I mean, I think these these politicians probably have a pretty good sense, certainly a better sense than I do, of what the politics of their state look like. And if they think this kind of thing is lethal there, I'm not saying 100% sure that it is, but it's not a crazy thing to say, OK, like let's let's draw down 20% because you're going to need those votes um, and, and you're going to need something and you're going to need those votes to get um, anything passed over the finish line. And so there does seem to me to be information encoded in all this that is worth taking seriously. Not worth, by the way, being utterly determinative about. Um, I do think that part of the, the work of politics is pushing people further than they think is possible. But I also think part of it is listening. Like it's just it's just not it's just not a one way exchange. Yeah. I mean, so I, I don't know, uh, you know, what sort of indicators you take seriously. I, I don't take seriously, you know, a one percent polling guy who's trying to, uh, you know, audition for Joe Biden's VP slot. I, I don't take seriously what, you know, he's doing. You know, I mean, we could, you know, look directly at polls, Medicare for all polls. Well, if you ask it in certain kind of ways, it polls even better. If you ask it in other kind of ways, it polls worse. Uh, if you want to look at the indicators on the stage, uh, you know, who are the top four candidates? You got Biden, who's doing his Biden care thing, Warren and Sanders, one and two. They're combined basically where Biden is, you know, 30. Uh, and then Harris, who I don't know, you know, I mean, she's all over the place, obviously, <laughs> depending on the day. But even her new Medicare Advantage for all kind of thing is, you know, certainly closer to <laughs> Warren and, and Sanders than than Biden. So no, now if you put, you know, them together, it's 40 versus 30. Well, you know, that must that must be where people are. Um I, I don't. I don't think that kind of information is is telling us a whole lot, uh, especially since you know politicians are jockeying in in in, in weird ways. Um, like I don't think Biden has any particular opinion. I think if he thought you know single payer was the way to go, that's that's what he would do. Um, so, you know, I, I don't. I, I I don't think that that's particularly useful. And what and, would and, be what would be information you would take seriously? Like what what is political information that you would count as legitimate? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I I do like to look at polls, see how polls are are asked and answered. Um, but in general, you know, the polls give you a nice snapshot, and and you know that that'll tell you where people are, but it doesn't tell you where where they're going to be, and it tells you how you know they are based on particular framings. Um, I think it's fine, of course, to to look at the Senate and say, well, 
in the next, you know, two years, based on, you know, who's, you know, the Senate doesn't get reelected entirely each year, only a third does. That's fine. You know, that's totally reasonable. I think that's a reasonable approach. But I don't think that tells you where, you know, Americans overall are or where we're going to be four years from now, which can change pretty rapidly. Let's take a quick break. I'll be back with my guest, Matt Brunig, right after this. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. One of the things I wonder about is, and I think this goes to the point about uh, different generations. You know, when I came um, to Washington and started covering healthcare, politics, and policy, the formative experiences were 94 and 1989. So it's like when you talk to anybody, because nobody really done a big try since then. I came in 2005. Um, it was at like, the Clintons had tried to do like a fundamental overall system and like got annihilated. They like the plan didn't pass, but also they lost the Congress for the first time in a generation uh, or the House in that case. Um, and then in 89, when Reagan had done Medicare catastrophic and it passed and then uh, as seniors felt that it was going to raise taxes or, and take some things away from them, they literally began like like rioting in the streets and shook Dan Rostenkowski in a car, like, like shook him. Um, and then it got repealed. And so there was this very, this very deep sense that failure is really possible and that you, you had to sort of like work around the status quo bias of the system. And that's sort of how you get to Obamacare. And one of the things I, I, I do wonder if it's happening too, um, is that I think for people who came later and watched Obamacare, like that was a real, like one was success is possible. Like you actually can pass something. 
Um, but I think the regret a lot of people have about Obamacare, whether or not I think it was possible to do this, is that it didn't go further, right? I think the the flaws and sins of Obamacare are that it is not as good a health reform as one would have wanted to have. And like, you know, I covered it and I can give you chapter and verse on why it got compromised down, but it doesn't change that simple fact. And sometimes I wonder how much of political debate and disagreement is just people's difficulty getting out of their own formative experiences and knowing which of the experiences are relevant to apply to the time. Like, you know, the experience of this can move very fast or the experience of like this can fail very badly. And if it fails very badly, a lot of people will pay. Well, and, and the you know, I would say in general, uh, younger people, you know, their experiences are closer to where things are currently. So, you know, if, if, if there is bias in experience, it's going to be younger people who have a closer, you know, uh, relationship to where policy is now, as opposed to people bringing in lessons from literally 25 years ago. Um, Obamacare, you know, I mean, not to go off on a tangent here, but I, I think Obamacare is an interesting lesson in, you know, what is the moderate alternative exactly? When when Obamacare passed in, what was it, was March of 2010 or thereabouts, um, it was polling at 39%. Which is which is lower than the most negatively framed Medicare for all questions, which tend to pull around forty one percent the last time I saw. So you know, basically the same. Um, so it it pulled basically where Medicare for all pulled. It was passed, and the Democrats got completely wiped out. Um, so what I mean, what's the lesson there? Well, I would actually, I mean, I actually think there is one. So when. Obamacare, I think what everybody can agree on with that is like that was a plan designed with a lot of polling in mind. You know, they they really looked at it and like tried to figure out where like where you would be and like how could you create something that had both like public opinion as much on its side as you could and had um, uh, enough kind of congressional support. Like on the one hand, it's an amazing success that it passed because most things fail to our conversation um, that we've looped around here. But the other is that I think the experience that we've seen in a lot of different political fights is that things get less popular as they go through the process. Um, as they go through the process, they get whittled down. People like interest groups demand things. Individual senators demand things. It's a long fight. Industry is running ads. People are getting frustrated. Something that we have a lot of political science showing is people just don't like watching something get fought over. They like There's a view that the public holds somewhat implicitly that if it was a good idea, people wouldn't be fighting about it. So when there's a long fight, which there will be on any kind of big reform and always is, um, people just like, get angry and angrier at the underlying reform. They just don't like to see Washington bickering. And so one way of reading it is that, well, nothing will be popular. And another way of reading it is that starting low is a, is a bad dynamic because you're going to lose even from there, most likely. Uh, and like, if you don't have anywhere to go down, like then you're then you're in real trouble. Well, it, 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 but it was never doing that well, you know. Prior to that, I mean, part of this is confusing because no one can really, I don't know, fully contain what Obamacare is in their head because it's this sort of you know uh, mixture of different reforms. And you know, if you pulled them separately, people liked yep. the, some of the elements. So I I don't know what to you know to to, to how to how to even interpret the polls going going back prior to that. But it. It was never particularly popular. I mean, the, the lesson I take away from it is you can pass popular or unpopular things uh, and, you know, it, it's fine. Like you get wiped out, but you're going to get if, if, if you're going to get wiped out on Obamacare, you're going to get wiped out on, on anything else. So you know, why even bother? Like to me, the theory of doing Obamacare in part is, well, you've got all these Congress people and they don't want to, you know, get knocked out in the next election. So we go real conservative and then they get knocked out anyway. So why bother? Just get your majority in, 
push the, the hardest thing you can, you're going to get wiped out if you really do anything, even if you don't do anything. I mean, Trump, the Republicans got wiped out. I don't really know what they did to get wiped out, except obviously Trump is a very unpopular guy. But like, you're going to get wiped out anyway in the next midterm. So just do it. I sort of agree with that, actually, for, for what it's worth, because I, um, I, I think that legislators have a weird idea of what will let them survive. And I don't want to say here that I think I don't I don't believe policy construction is binary. I don't believe like everything is the same level of good or bad because like you'll just get wiped out no matter what. Like there's actually like among other things, good evidence that voting against Obamacare was good for the people who did it. And I, I do think that there are differences here. But I think that um, like if I could like wave my wand and make a change to the mindsets of legislators, I would say that they should worry less about how things are polling and more about how well they will work um, and more about how like quickly they will pass. Because the thing that is really deadly is just getting in like an endless interminable fight where you're now like trying to show your independence by whittling something down. Now, like I can't wave my wand on that and people do it, but I actually think that is a like a deep political mistake that people make that if like Democrats or Republicans stopped thinking of themselves as individual legislators and thought of themselves as a single nationalized team that is going to be judged based on how well that team seems to be governing the nation, um, they would have a much more coherent theory of the electorate and what's going on. Maybe there are a couple of like counterexamples of people who very consciously position themselves outside of the party, somebody like a Joe Manchin in West Virginia. But for the most part, I like think that holds true. And this model is a throwback to when there was a lot more divergence between how people uh, estimated individual legislators in a district or state versus a party. But now like the evidence is they just like collapse them into one more or less. And people should people should take that more seriously. So maybe that's another theory of change is the, the members of Congress uh, wisen up and stop being so sort of stupid about how they're going to be reelected when they're really not. You know, Doug, Doug Jones can vote for every uh, Trump nominee he wants, but he's not going to survive. Let's talk about financing for a minute. One of the things that comes up a lot is people just do not like the idea that their taxes are going to go up. And the answer to that, which you've, you've answered in, is an answer I agree with, is that, well, look, like it's not really going up because the amount that is being paid in premiums and copays and deductibles and so on would actually be lower. It would just be kind of integrated into taxes. And then like the thing people say from there is, yeah, but when you move all that into visible taxes out of sort of like routing through sort of weird employer byproducts or it's in like the taxpayer system now, but people don't know what they're paying. You just get a lot of public opposition. Like this is a precise point where the Vermont legislation failed when they had to come through the financing and it was going to be, I think, an 11% payroll tax on top of a reasonably large income tax hike. And even then, like Shumlin, the governor who was pushing it, kind of abandoned the project. How do you finance something like this such that like the like the sticker shock doesn't send people running to the hills. Yeah, well, you know, to reiterate, you know, the basic mechanic here is uh, we have this concept of healthcare payments, which includes Medicare, Medic, you know, taxes you pay in a Medicare, taxes you pay in a Medicaid, uh, foregone wages, et cetera. You know, you, you bring all that into a bucket, and then and then you you know then you have single payer, which has its own financing mechanisms for the vast majority of people, the single payer. Uh, the amount that they're going to pay is going to be less, you know, overall healthcare payment wise. In terms of like getting people massaged on this, you know, I mean, the normal answer to this, and I don't know if this is true, but, you know, this would be sort of, you know, a, a typical approach if you look at other welfare states, is you just use indirect taxes, 
right? So, you know, the thing that makes uh, employer insurance opaque right now is that employers pay a lot of the premium. Of course, we all know workers pay that through foregone wages, but it's an indirect charge on workers. Well, we have a mechanism for that called the employer side payroll tax. And so just dial that up. In, in Sweden, the employer side payroll tax, this is the side that is completely opaque to workers, is over 30%. Um, in the U.S., you know, if you add it all together, you know, obviously it goes up and down depending if you're over various caps or whatever. I, you know, I think it's around six or seven or eight percent total. So, you know, if you really wanted to do it in a very indirect way where no one would see it on their bills, just up the employer side payroll tax and you could do it every year. Like you could say, oh, OK, on year one, we're going to up the employer side payroll tax by two percent. And then another 2%, then another 2%, then another 2%. And you have this period of deficit financing, but eventually, you know, it balances out. That could be something you, you could do if that if that is like really what you're trying to maximize is opaqueness to 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 users, you know. So the the thing that ends up being, I think, the, the tricky thing there is that employers are super politically powerful, too. And if they all are angry about it, then it's also hard to like you, you end up with sort of the same problem, the public like is employed and some of them are in businesses and they're very, very well organized. And so one of the frustrations that I've always had um, reporting on healthcare policy, and I've done a lot of pieces trying to explore this, is that it seems to me employers should want to get the hell out of the system, that they have no control over it. Their costs go up every year. They go up quite unpredictably. And that you really would think employers would want to turn this over to the government or someone else who can do more cost control. They can have a predictable financing. If they're going to be paying in, at least they can plan for it, right? To your point, you can have the employer payroll tax um, go up at a straight rate, right? It's like, you know, it goes up like by 0.5% inflation adjusted, you know, inflation plus 0.5 every year. Um, and yet they don't, they, they don't do that. They organize aggressively every time this kind of thing comes up. And they, like when I talk to them, one of the things I will hear is that they say, well, you know, we feel like we have control, you know, because at least like we can move things around or, you know, like to, to your point, actually change insurance. Um, and that if it's just like if we just become a piggyback for the government and they're going to have like a super generous plan and are not going to control costs because that would be too hard to do, that it's going to get even worse for us than it currently is. And so like it always seems like that's one of the real sticking points in reform. I mean, one reason some of these players like CAP are trying to minimize just overall tax increase by keeping employers in the system is just because trying to raise those taxes seems so politically hard to them. Um, what's your what's your sort of like approach to this? Well, I don't think we'll be able to convince employers of uh, the wisdom of this, you know, in, 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 separate from the financing because fundamentally employers like to sort of control that employer-based insurance gives over over their workers um you know i mean we saw this with obamacare i mean the exchanges turned out to be a bit of a i don't know disaster in terms of you know what was expected and what actually came of it though not you know necessarily awful if your income is below 400% of the poverty line um and, you know, why didn't employers dump into the exchanges? And, you know, I don't know, as far as I can tell from reading, you know, it's uh, they, they, they like to be able to, uh, you know, exert some kind of control over, over the... Do you, like you want to just explain employer dumping and that theory? Because I agree, this is an interesting thing, but I think people may not be familiar with it. Yeah. So, you know, in the Obamacare universe, people get insurance from Medicaid, Medicare, their employer, or if none of those, they're supposed to go on these individual exchanges, which are set up county by county. And if you have income below 400% of the poverty line, you get an advanced premium tax credit. Basically, you pay a percentage of your income as a premium instead of having to pay a flat amount. 
Um, if you're over 400%, you hit this cliff and it's a real kind of disaster. But, um, you know, the, there was some hope employers would dump people on these uh, exchanges. They would just say, hey, you know, uh, go get your plan on the exchange. I'll pay you higher wage. Just go get it on the exchange. Um, and for people who had less than 400% of the poverty lines, probably would be a good deal for a lot of them. Um, and, and that didn't happen. And, you know, as far as I can tell from reporting that I've read, uh, you know, employer, you know, the way employers will put it is they're like, uh, this is a, a way to entice workers. Um, and I don't know, to me, my my more cynical approach is this is a way of having control over workers because, uh, you know, if they if they want to leave, uh, then, then they have to think twice about uh, losing their insurance. Um, and I, I think that's more important to them than. Well, that's interesting. I think another part of it is just like one of one of the things that I did not expect when I began reporting on this is just how much of all insurance decisions are made by the HR department, not like by the like the top line people like worrying about the whole thing. And just like what they don't want is people yelling at them like HR departments at, at a lot of employers. Just, just like they don't they don't want all the employees like starting to scream at the CEO like something is going wrong. And so I feel like that's a big, that's oddly enough has always been a bigger part of this than people recognize. It's just like employers, they, they, they do want some of the control. They do want the ability to entice people, but they're also just status quo oriented because their employees are. And that if everybody's yelling at the HR department, it ends up being a huge problem. And so the HR department doesn't do as many clever things as you would expect them to because they're, they're risk averse too. And they get like, they get fired if it seems like the employees are mad all the time. That makes some sense in the context of an employer having a choice but in a single pair you know you would think well, you know why why would they resist that on that theory the hr would just mm -hmm. say look what do you want me to do i you know go talk to the government yeah i, I was I talking about like more the employer dumping theory yeah yeah so in the so in the single pair context then like how do you explain opposition to that and i think it, the control is, an, is 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 a big aspect um control is a big aspect to that workers i mean employers like to have control over their workers and you know, being able to cut off someone's insurances. You know, I don't want to say like there's sort of, you know, Mr. Burns types figures and, you know, just like cackling about it. But on some level, like they they recognize that this is a way to attract and retain workers, which is good for them, but not good for workers necessarily who, you know, would be benefited from being able to switch more more easily from one job to another. So that would be that. Separately, yeah, I don't I don't think you'll ever win employers. I don't think you'll ever win rich people who are obviously not going to be net beneficiaries from the system. I mean, you know, I think you could make some case to them to say, hey, yeah, you're going to pay more, but, you know, hey, at least, you know, it'll be consistent. But I don't know, for the most part, they're going to be like, uh, you know, I'm going to have less money. So those are the people you're just going to have to beat. Like you're not going to get consensus on you. Those are people you're going to have to beat. Um, some, sometimes I hear this like line, um, like you're just going to have to beat them. You're like going to have to bulldoze them. You're going to have to like get over them. And like I kind of like there's a part of me. It's like, yeah, like you do just have to beat them. Um, and then there's this other part of me. It's like, yeah, but what if you can't beat them? And I think one of the other interesting strategic questions in, in these sort of healthcare plans that are competing with each other is if you leave a lot of the current system intact, putting fully aside the question of like, how you want to phrase this question of whether or not people are keeping their health insurance. If you leave the employer side of the system intact, it really lowers the upfront cost and tax changes you need to do to create it. And so you get away from both the question to some degree of do you need to have a massive individual tax hike or a massive like change in how employers are financing that now gets put into a tax hike they don't want. And that by kind of given the number of interests you're going to have to be fighting already, that not adding those to the list would just like make your life a, quite a bit easier. doesn't mean you won't fight them at all, right? You might still, but there's a real difference between 
telling somebody that they're going to have now a 10% employer-side payroll tax and telling them that, you know what, for your company, this actually is not going to be this big of a deal. You're kind of just going to keep doing what you're doing. And I think there's wisdom sometimes in placating powerful interests that potentially have the ability to to, to do a reform. Um, it doesn't, I think, sound as good as beat them, but I think it, I think it's often borne out in the past. So, talk to me a little bit about your theory of beating them. Like, how does that, how does that look? And why are the people who say, you know what, like maybe, maybe don't try to unite all of the um, interest groups that could like, t- like rise up against you all at once are wrong? Yeah, I mean, the wisdom is just a numbers game, right? I mean, how many employers are there? Like, necessarily, employers are a small fraction of the population because, you know, they have employees. You know, you do the math <laughs> on that. So, like, that's that's sort of the theory of it. Uh, if they're going to bring money to bear, you know, I mean, that's going to be something you have to deal with. But I don't think you 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 want to give in to people just because they have money and they could beat you because then you're really going to struggle to get anything done. And I think that people are a little try to be a little bit too cute about this in which they think, oh, well, you know, what what if we uh, we could piss off the insurance companies, but we'll keep the employers happy and then that will allow us to move the ball forward this way. And then when the insurers are out of the way, then we can, you know, maybe take out the employers. And and it's like, yeah, if you're capable of thinking about that, you know, why why aren't the uh, why aren't the people who you're tricking uh, capable of understanding that? Oh, well, this is a this is a three step process to getting to getting themselves cut out as well. Uh, so I, I don't know that you you ever can necessarily neutralize opposition that way. I mean, we see this sort of with the you know these public option plans, which in theory are supposed to be more you know congenial to private insurers, or even like Kamala's plan, which is you know keeps private insurers you know even implementing the new public plan and they're they they're not fooled by this they 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 still recognize that there's some threat here even I don't even think those plans are congenial to private insurers that's somewhere where I just like totally disagree with the way people sometimes frame that i mean kamala's plan is there are more create sure more but kamala's plan is it has we for people who've not followed this kamala harris's plan has a very very strange implementation scheme where it takes 10 years to implement and it's a, sort of a way of hiding the ball on cost so there's a lot about that plan that i that i don't not like and that i think that has put them in a pretty bad position for defending it but long term what it does is it creates a public insu- like an integrated public insurance system with medicare at the center of it and then like private options people can opt into. No more employer-based insurance, no more of any of this. It's a plan that in a lot of ways I like the end point of, but it is a fucking disaster for private insurers. I mean, they would shrink from whatever they are now to um, probably a pretty tiny amount of the market if you take the plan at its stated purpose. And even some of the employer, I'm sorry, the public option plans we're seeing now, the stronger ones that have Medicare pricing in the public option and sort of in, in Joe Biden's version of it, a public option with Medicare pricing that employers can buy into, like that's creating a government-backed competitor to private insurance. Like they are going to fight that. But that's why, like the, I don't think the argument here is that you're going to reduce the fighting of private insurers. I think the argument here is potentially employers are very powerful and you don't want to necessarily infuriate them. You actually want them to look at it and say, you know, that might actually be better for me on the other side. Like that, 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 that might be a good, that might be a good plan. I agree that you don't want to be too clever, but literally every piece of policy I can think of passing like everywhere ends up doing some of this. It does some fighting of interest and some placating of interest. It's always some mix. And so I think that the like the principle that you don't want to do any of it just seems very strange to me. It doesn't seem to be like how we see anything work. 
Well, I mean, yeah. So if you, you know, there are other interests you, you might want to placate in this context. Um, to me, employer sponsored, I mean, just like you said, it, it, it is a completely horrific system. So, you know, I, if, if anything, I, I'd, I'd rather you know, piss them off than, than piss the, the private insurers off, um, you know, if I had to make a choice, because that, that's the thing that's really just awful. Yeah. I mean, I, I lost my insurance you know, a week before my first child was born. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was just, it was just horrible. And, you know, that, that's a much worse experience than uh, I got to go pay Edna every month, you know, um, on the exchanges or whatever, you know, if we had like a universal sort of exchange based system. So if I had to pick a fight, I, I definitely wouldn't. Uh, I definitely would focus on, on getting rid of, of employer sponsored insurance first. Yeah, I think that I mean, I think that's right. I just think that 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 is by far the hardest of the fights. I mean, when I look at the international system, I think the big question is actually, do you have an integrated national system or not? Um, and you can look at – there are a lot of integrated national systems that have private insurers and then there are a bunch that more or less don't. I mean I think mostly everybody has some amount of it. But you know, you can look at like the Netherlands, which has a lot of private insurance or you could look at um, Canada or the UK, which doesn't. And like when I look at their spending and their ratings, like I have actually in front of me like the Commonwealth performance rankings. And it's like number one is the UK, which is socialized. But number two is Australia, which has a lot of private. And number three is the Netherlands, which I think it's – yeah, number three is the Netherlands, which has a lot of private. And then you have New Zealand. And they're all different. But it always makes me think that the core question here is not actually private insurance. It is the context in which the insurance is operating. And the question of like, are you – like the, the hardest thing to do is to fully integrate a totally fractured system. But on the other hand, the biggest payoffs come from doing that. Um, it's one reason that I've always been a big fan of uh, doing anything you can to move towards national integration. One of my big one of my big things when Obamacare was passing was that I thought it needed to have um, national exchanges that employers could buy into, um, and I wanted it to have a public option, which would have been helpful too. But that the thing right now where you have these state exchanges and like everything is fractured at every level and employers are a whole other system, to me, the way I actually rate plans is do they get us more towards integration or not much more heavily than I rate them on what is the role specifically for private insurance. Because you could give me um, a fully integrated system. That's a world in which you can regulate private insurance quite effectively, and it seems fine to me. It works perfectly well in other places. Um, you can also do it with the public insurer being the the main thing, but that's the that's the big that's like the big hard thing that I think people don't people don't talk about as an actual goal enough. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, I I I, I don't know about integration per se, but getting rid of. I mean, yes, I, I obviously agree that there should be a national uh, insurance system. But, you know, first and foremost, get the employers out of it. And then secondarily, get the insurers out of it is my view. I, I don't see any value that is added by uh, a private insurer that's worth paying margin or paying the executives of those companies. I don't see any value that's added, frankly. I mean, it's they're not providers. They're, they're, they're performing a financial job that the federal government could do just as well. So... I say get rid of them, but you know, if I if I had to prioritize the things, right? Obviously, that that would be uh, that would be after eliminating em employer sponsored insurance, which is a, a great a great evil in my view. All right, we need to squeeze in a quick break, but we'll be right back. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. 
Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Let me um, now talk about some of the, the questions in single payer itself. Like imagine that we got there um, and recognizing that this is going to be me bringing sort of politics and political institutions into the question. One of the places where however you think about solving it that, that I worry is that I look at our political system and I think it does a very bad job. And like the specific way it does a very bad job is that it is incredibly gridlocked and it geographically heavily overweights conservative politicians and conservative places. So, you know, the Senate and the White House are both currently um, held by people, by parties that did not win the, the majority vote. And I used to talk with um, the late health economist Uwe Reinhardt, who was a single-payer supporter and had helped kind of set up the Taiwanese system, among others. And he used to say to me that he thought America was simply too corrupt as a political system to do single-payer well. And I would like to think that's not true. I think that we we do run a certain number of single-payer or nearer-to-single-payer systems reasonably well. The VA, TRICARE, parts of Medicare, although obviously you have Medicare Advantage there, um, much of Medicaid. But on the other hand, like when I look at them individually, a lot of bad decisions get made. And again, this is part of why I tend to like the idea of having sort of private options as a way to keep the system with some kind of backstops if if you get into if you get into a bad place. but but recognizing your sort of response to that is which I think is somewhat convincing, which is, well, look, if you're saying that the political system is going to make bad decisions, it can make bad decisions across both of them. Well, if you just take a step back on that, if the political system is going to make bad decisions, like then what do you do, right? Like this is like the conservative argument against this, which is like pol- politicians make bad decisions and you don't want it all to be politics. Like how do you how do you answer them? Or even if you're not answering conservatives, how do you answer just somebody who like kind of likes where you're going, but they themselves do not trust like the government because they look at it and it's run by Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, may- maybe the first thing you want to do is uh, problematize this uh public-private distinction. I mean, you know, I I hate to go back to sort of, you know, you you can kind of cut this both ways, but um, to the extent that you think that the government's going to be ineffective uh, or or going to be ineffective as a 
as a public insurer, then surely it's also going to be ineffective as a regulator of private insurance. In fact, that's probably going to be an even harder task to do because as you know, private insurers, they have money and you know, lobbies and that sort of thing. So, but that's what you're going to need. I mean, to, to make private insurance work well, it's going to have to be heavily regulated. I mean, it's, it's almost, I mean, entirely controlled in the you know Europe, Europeans entirely regulated as it is. Um, so you know, I mean, to me, you know, you, you can't really make that distinction. So so finally, um, that I mean, that would be sort of my view on it. I, I think I think a lot of these distinctions we make between public and private and, and the healthcare. Uh, situation is is sort of goofy, right? I mean, like Obamacare is a good. It's actually an argument I make. I, I appreciate you saying this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's goofy, and, and 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 but you know, at the end of the day, the privates are sucking money out of the system that they shouldn't be sucking out of it. But for the sake of this argument, right? You know, what does Obamacare do? It mandates employers pay private providers to do or private insurers to get insurance. It mandates individuals to get insurance. You know, we don't call those payments taxes, though the Supreme Court calls the fine if you don't pay them taxes. But we don't call those payments taxes but like they are. They're, they're, those are taxes, right? If you mandated those same payments into a government entity, that would be a tax. But since it's mandated into a private entity, it isn't. And then those private entities are required to do gold or silver or provide the essential health benefits. And so, you know, the whole thing is controlled from top to bottom by the government. And so if you don't trust the government, I mean, I don't know what what you want to do about about healthcare. Like that's just one of those sectors. It's just not going to operate. Let me push a little bit because I don't think it's I don't think it's true that the whole thing is controlled top to bottom by the government. I think that I, I do think, as you said, and I make this argument constantly, that a lot of the times the distinction people are making between public and private are, are wrong or it's too fuzzy to make that distinction or the thing they're actually pointing at is not a public-private issue. But I think that the argument people make here is that it is good to have some players who are operating off of market incentives and not public incentives. Now, you can even believe that we should move the mix of the system heavily towards operating off of public incentives, but still have some players who are operating off of market incentives, that the market incentives are going to be more honest in pricing or more honest in innovation or whatever. They're just not going to be quite as um, ideologically suffused with whoever happens to be in power right then. And so one of the arguments that I find somewhat convincing on having um, a private insurance backstop is that if like something went really awry uh, in terms of like how the government was thinking about its one insurer, like that would be really bad if you had no other options that you could like get. Um, I take your point that you know maybe that uh, objection applies with similar force to, to my thing, but there is like a political economy problem here that people bring up to me that I think is somewhat convincing because the American government has done a shitty job for a long time, and one of the arguments that sort of you have to overcome is people saying like your critique of them is thoroughgoing and convincing, right? It's all run by millionaires and billionaires and it's corrupt and it's, you know, it's fused at the moment with like white supremacist ideology. And now you're saying like they're going to like take over everything really directly. Like why do you trust them? And I think it's sort of a – it's not a hard argument for me to answer in the abstract, but it's a much harder argument for me to answer in the specific. Yeah. Well, I mean so – I mean if you get to the specific, you know, I mean in the context of insurance, right, the – what would the private insurer be able to do that the public insurer couldn't, right? Like, what, what exactly would their incentive be? So there's a couple of models here, right? So in the sort of Kamala approach where it's like they're basically offering an identical plan, but they're, they're a different administration. In that case, when the government acts, presumably, I mean, if it maintains that system, 
If the government wants to change its public Medicare plan, that's also going to apply to the private Medicare plan. So if it starts to degrade the plan, then doesn't the private plan, the privately administered versions of it get degraded as well? Now, of course, we can say, well, maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they would just degrade the public plan and detach the privates from it. You know, and then we start getting into these sort of hypotheticals about how the government, how precisely the government's going to start screwing up the public plan and whether they will also simultaneously screw up the private plans in the same way. In general, I would say the market incentives of a private plan, especially one that's heavily regulated and that has to like offer similar benefits as the public plan, their market incentives are, for the most part, to deny coverage. And, you know, that's how they make their money, right? I mean, if you, if you have to offer the same benefits as the public plan, and how, how are you going to make money? Um, how, how are you going to be able to charge a lower price and beat them out or, or anything like that? It's going to have to be by... And you see that in the Medicare Advantage situation, you know? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, people go back and forth on, is there some world where you can have better disease management and so on? And my view is that that stuff is not borne out that well, but I guess theoretically it could. Um, let me ask about another, like one of the other big design features here, which is this idea of, do you want it to be free at the point of service? Something that something that has been adopted as a um, as a moniker is this idea that this is like free healthcare, like you talk about healthcare being free. Um, I think that, I think in the way that you think that um, if you like your plan, you can keep it. Like this is a, this is both like not true, but it's um, it's going to backfire when people are like free healthcare sounds great. And then it's like, oh, here's a tax bill. But the, the question I have about it is like, I do think there's a really good argument for healthcare to be free at the point of service, which is what people are normally truly talking about here. So you don't have you don't have copays, you don't have deductibles, you don't go in and pay $25 to go to the doctor. But the reason, like, it's obvious, I think, to everybody that, that would be a more popular system. But the reason people don't do it is that it just means you have to front load the cost quite a bit more. And so I'm, I'm curious to just hear you talk through a little bit of how you think about that trade-off, not sort of in the idea of like, of course, it'd be better to not have it be more, um, to not have to have copays, but that the like added upfront cost is something that people sort of both in practice and in polling seem to not want. Okay, so this is not a not a utilization question. Was a I'm question not, of no, premiums I versus? I don't really. I think that there. Are, I do not like the idea of the way you're going to manage utilization is by making people who have to repeatedly go to the doctor pay twenty dollars. I don't think that is a. I think that there. Are, I think they're really. We should talk about utilization because I think it's an interesting question. But I'm not asking that specifically right, right. now. I'm kind of asking about. Like thinking about this as a trade-off between um, where and when people pay, and that when they choose their own plans now, and then when they seem to like choose plans in the political system, they often go for things that have lower upfront costs, even if that has higher kind of like down the down the line costs. Yeah. So I mean, in the, the you know another way to describe the front-loading, back-loading question would be: to what degree do you want to socialize the cost of? Healthcare, and to what degree do you want to individualize the cost of healthcare? That's to me the real trade-off. And you know, from a kind of a philosophical, you know, egalitarian perspective, what we're trying to do with the with a healthcare system, ideally, is to make it to where people live similar lives regardless of their level of sickness. You know, so this actually plays out in interesting ways in our current system, where people have these arguments. So conservatives will th- say things like. Um, you know, I'm a man. Why do I have to pay for pregnancy stuff? You know, 
Um, and we go, well, we, we don't we don't want women to be due to men not having anything to do with pregnancy. <laughs> right. 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 Or, or it may, it may not even be pregnancy. It could be something like breast cancer, or, you know, some, maybe something where it's a little bit more. Or there was know, a big um, there was a big argument on the right that one of the big thing problems in Obamacare was that it limited age rating. And you're sure, basically yeah. saying, why do the why do the young have to pay more so the old can have health care? Like, what, what what the hell is that about? Like, that's a violation of my civil rights. Right, right. And, and you know, the response is to say, well, we're trying to equalize. We're trying to equalize these the conditions of these individuals. So we, we don't want to, you know, women to have, you know, it's not just pregnancy. Women are utilize much more health care than men do across all sorts of, you know, different levels. So we don't want women to be worse off than men just because they need more health care as a sort of biological matter than men have or people who have disabilities or whatever. And the more you put it into out-of-pocket expenses, the more that's the case. And so that's sort of the ideological, you know, argument against it. But let me ask you about one one way you could cut that, which is a lot of the plans you see, the way they try to do this is they say, well, the rich should pay more than the poor. Like that is a that is a cut we're comfortable making. And they do that both on the sort of upfront premium level of, you know, whether you're thinking about premiums as paid to private insurers or paid to uh, through taxes to a public insurer, but that you should also do that on the copay and cost sharing level. So that you have a lot of these plans that have, you know, 100% actuarial value, which is say the plan covers 100% of, of medical costs for people who are poorer. But then as you go up the income ladder, people have more cost sharing, more deductibles, more copays, whatever it might be, with the idea being that they can afford it and it's good to keep the upfront cost down a little bit. Like, why isn't that a good idea? Yeah. So, I mean, th- this goes to, uh, an, again, another sort of ideological question. You know, my vision of uh, the sort of social democratic egalitarian welfare state is you're not just trying to uh, limit the vertical inequality, as they say, between low earners and high earners, you know, by squeezing their income distribution through taxes and transfers or wage compression or whatever. You're also trying to uh, equalize similar earners that have different kind of life circumstances, right? So high earners that have three kids, we want to give them, you know, child allowance and whatever because you have a high earner over here who has no kids and we want them to have similar kinds of lives or a high earner who is has sickness issues and, and you know, is, you know, some sort of disability that needs care. We don't want them to live a worse life than a high earner who doesn't. And we can debate on what the difference between high earners and low earners should be. And that, I think, you know, should be very small. But to the extent that we maintain that differential, we want inside each band people to be equal with respect to health. We don't want someone to live a worse life just because they have worse health, even if they're high earners. That's sort of like my ideal vision. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. Um, so let me ask you about the utilization question, because I think that this is one that doesn't get debated that much right now, but it's probably the single Maybe not the single biggest, but will be if you got into a political process around Medicare for all, like like a huge thing. So the idea here for people who, who aren't super familiar with the conversation is that if you pass a universal plan, so now 30-some million more people have health insurance, and you pass a plan where healthcare is free at point of service, so they have no cost barrier to achieving to, to getting that health insurance, and you pass a plan that has no networks whatsoever, so they can see anybody. Um, you are going to have a lot of pent-up demand in the healthcare system for more healthcare. You're going to have a rush of people trying to go to doctors who are already oversubscribed. 
And you're going to have what you have in other countries, which is um, waiting lists and waiting lines. And like, there's nothing that like you can poll, and I've seen these polls, like nothing you can poll that will drive support for something down as much as saying there's going to be waiting times for points of care. Now, like in a Matt Brunig way, I've spent years arguing that America rations care by cost, and that is worse, but it does not as of yet change the poll numbers on this point. And so it does seem to me to be true that if we move to a system that is this generous, you would see an increase in utilization and you would not see a corresponding instant increase in supply. And so you would have this waiting issue. And it also creates a problem for, I think, the popular talking point on the left, which is you can see any doctor because like, actually you can't. Um, the best doctors are going to have some limit to the number of people you can see. So how do you think about that both as a like a policy matter in terms of like, do you think that would increase utilization a lot? And then kind of managing it then as a problem for the system. I kind of go back and forth on the utilization question, whether it would actually increase it, because I, I see the arguments, you know, there's, well, if the cost sharing comes down, won't people use use more care? But then there are these really interesting counter arguments. So, so the, you know, when people try to model how much utilization is going to go up, usually they use this study where they, you know, took people who had like, you know, good health care and then they put a high deductible on them. And then like how much, you know, less did they go to the doctor? And that, that's like the elasticity they use. But that's like one individual. We, we know that their usage goes down when cost sharing goes up. But we don't know if that necessarily is true in aggregate. And the reason it might not be true in aggregate is this sort of counter argument is that the system might respond in certain ways, right? That, that providers themselves have ways of managing demand. And when they get more demand in, what happens is they change the threshold for whether they want to admit someone to the hospital or whatever. And this is in some ways opaque to people. So there was a study recently um, in, I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine, where they tried to see what happened after Obamacare came on, right? Because Obamacare added a lot of people onto insurance and, and crucially, mostly through Medicaid, which is a not, not a cost-sharing um, system. So you'd think, well, utilization went up. But we know in aggregate, utilization did not go up over this period, even though a lot more people became uh, insured without cost sharing. And what they showed was that utilization just redistributed. So people who had less, you know, whose incomes were below, you know, 138% of the poverty line, their utilization went up. And people whose incomes were over 400%, you know, their utilization went down. And what that that would be consistent with this theory that providers themselves are playing around with, you know, oh, you know, the hospitals are empty today. Maybe I admit you. And then you've seen some other studies. And actually, I, I think you, you were on this episode of The Weeds where there was the study about dentists in Switzerland, which, which told the same story, which was like, you know, they took this guy, they checked his teeth, you know, he didn't really need cavities. And they sent him to like 10 dentists. And some of them were like, you need, you know, eight cavities filled. And some of them were like, uh, you're fine, go home. And the ones that were telling him he needed a lot of work done, business was slow. Um, and, and the ones who, who tell, told him to go home, business was, was not slow. And so there's some element of, of providers themselves who are playing around with, with utilization just based on, you know, how much demand they're getting. So I was in, I'll tell a story about this. I was in Kaiser for a while, Kaiser um, uh, Insurance. And Kaiser's an integrated system unto itself in that it owns, it's, a, it's an insurer, but it ha it owns its hospitals and doctors. And, and so the, the kind of thing works not across purposes, but, but it's sort of as an integrated system. And I was really struck when I was part of Kaiser, just how much the health system did not really want me to use it and was built in ways that I liked to make it easy for me to not use it. 
So Kaiser was great about letting me email my doctor because if I emailed my doctor and was like, I feel sick, and then my doctor was like, eh, give it two days, then I would give it two days. Whereas in other systems I've been in, if you email your doctor, they're like, come on in, <laughs> like you should get right. that checked out. Um, and it was funny because in Kaiser at a number of these points, I got put off for a while and then it turned out I did need treatment. I did need like a small surgery at one point or whatever. But like in the long run, I was no worse off for it. And it was a really, I've always taken that like as a really interesting sort of like lived example of how of how different the decisions, um, overall incentives make in a system for how they treat you. Because at Kaiser where they were salaried and the insurer saved money if the hospital didn't admit me, um, like they they wanted to admit me less. And like in the UK where everything is run on capitation, like they admit people a lot less. And so like I, I, I do think there is a lot of supply um, flexibility here that people don't always give credit for. Yeah, I actually had a similar experience with my wife. She was on her um, on her parents' insurance when she got pregnant the first time, but they did not cover um, that. That insurance did not cover maternity for dependents, which I didn't even know was possible. But apparently, so we had to pay the OB out of pocket for like the first few months. Thankfully, open enrollment came on. I got on Kaiser. When she was uh, going to the OB out of pocket, they were doing ultrasounds every time she went and visit. When we got onto Kaiser, they did one ultrasound the first time we got in, which was duplicative of the prior one. And then they didn't they didn't do another one until they had to do the one where they, you know, see if the legs are there and that sort of stuff. They didn't do it every time you came in, um, which seemed to be a similar sort of incentive-based thing. So long story short, I, I don't know if utilization will go up. If it does go up, then yes, I mean, ideally, you want to triage utilization based on need, not based on... Um, ability to pay. So how but do you I, massage I guess, that with people? I, I don't, I, you know, you just have to, you just have to make the argument, see, see if you can convince people of it, you know. I guess one of my questions about it, though, is it something that I always would like to see in more of the ambitious health bills? This is true for Medicare for All, but also true for, you know, the Kamala Harris bill or Medicare Extra, is that it does seem to me there's a lot one could do on the supply side to increase the system's capacity. Because look, like, it may be that utilization doesn't go up much, but if we believe utilization won't go up at all, like I, I sort of like wonder how much we're really achieving here, because um, that implies to me that the the benefits we're achieving are on are not that they're nothing, but they're relatively on the margin. If we don't think that having this many people uninsured and this many people underinsured is creating some kind of like significant pressure in the system, then either we're saying that healthcare that people are getting who are insured is like mostly completely useless, and you could just cut a bunch of it with no problem, or we're saying that. Um, the people down the people down there are in ways that are probably not great, but are still getting a lot of their needed health care. So I'm kind of a believer that we're somewhere in between and we're going to see utilization. But you could do a ton through changing licensing rules and other things to increase the amount of healthcare supply. I mean, you could have so much more done by nurse practitioners. You could have way more credentialing medical schools than we currently have. There's just a, a lot more people would like to become doctors and are able to become doctors. Um, we could. There's a lot of stuff you could do regulatorily to make telemedicine easier. It just. It seems to me that we think so much about the demand side of healthcare, and there's a lot we could do that would actually really improve people's experience on the supply side and that that is something that like like liberals and the left should think more about. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, importing foreign doctors and that sort of thing. I would say on, just to push back slightly on the utilization point or just to clarify the argument that utilization won't go up, you, you know, one response is the one you gave, which is like, well, 
then what's the, you know, then I guess people are getting the health care they need. But the, the argument's a little bit more nuanced, which is to say aggregate utilization won't go up. But what you're going to see is a redistribution of utilization. Right. That's why I said from, that yeah. it means a lot of it. If you believe such a big change would lead to no aggregate change, I'm just saying that means so much of the current health care is wasted. Or you're saying that the healthcare is going to get much worse for people up high. Yes. I'm just saying this is such a big change that if there's no aggregate movement, it doesn't mean nobody is getting better care. Certainly some people are, but it's a real it, – it, it just means the difference is smaller than I would think as given my priors that this is a really big problem. Yeah. I, I, I If you've seen some estimates of the amount of waste, uh, I think it might be more compelling, though I don't know how those estimates are uh, – are, are derived exactly. Yeah, although the waste arguments always seem to me, like, I think the waste arguments are true, but I'm very convinced that we don't know which things are waste. I mean, I think right. this is why I'm not a fan of um, huge amounts of cost sharing, because I think a lot of the theory of cost sharing is that patients can know. Um, now you can just say, well, what if we just did cost sharing based on, like, what we know worked, which in a world where we had a lot better comparative effectiveness data, which I would like to have, maybe you could do that. But the more I've looked into this, the more I'm pretty sure that most um, – I don't think doctors are doing a ton of prescribing things they don't think will work. There's like some of this like with antibiotics for the flu. But I think in general, like they think things have a shot. Um, and so it's – I think a lot of it is ignorance on their part too. And like the more I've looked into the medical data, the more I'm shocked by how little we know about how well different treatments actually function. I, I think the, 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 the counter to that is um, – they, they have some sense of at least what is more likely to be waste than not. And like basically if you just crush them with demand that they start to triage in rational ways and that does involve cutting out waste implicitly. Like they, they will not admit as many people to hospital for things that don't really need to be admitted and stuff like that. So Yeah, I think that's probably right. I just – I also think though that the way they triage is telling people to wait and like some people like that and some people are really upset by it because, <laughs> I mean, this is something that people don't argue very often, but there is a good argument for waiting longer on a lot of elective things. A lot of things clear up, um, but people don't like being told to wait. And I think that like in the evidence I've seen, there's no doubt that when people begin to triage, one of the ways they triage, like literally when people hear the word triage in health, it's like they're at an ER and the ER is triaging some people to get seen right now and other people to wait in the waiting room. And um, like they do that on a macro scale. And, you know, we do have bad waiting times in Canada and UK, certainly in some years, but you don't see that really reflected in overall health data. And I think like one reason is putting aside the fact that one can find anecdotes where this is not true in the aggregate. It doesn't appear that the waiting times are like being um, applied poorly, but they still make people very angry. Yeah. You know, it's a there's a communications uh, element to it, you know, people, you know, and, and, and maybe it's a cultural thing as well, you know, people might adapt to the new system. I mean, we actually had uh, a waiting a triage issue with the, the birth of my second child, which just happened a month ago, where we were, uh, my wife was getting an induction and we, we showed up to the hospital and they were like, you know, um, all the beds are full of people who are not being induced, but like, you know, just went into labor. So come back uh, in 12 hours, uh, you know, and like, yeah, it was annoying, I suppose, but you know, I, I was able to overcome it rationally, and obviously, waiting twelve hours was not a big deal ultimately. So, is there anything you want to ask me? We we argue on the internet sometimes. I've you know because it's my podcast, I get to ask a lot of questions. Is there anything like you want to ask me or push me on? I like want to make sure there's some space for that. Um, you know, yeah. So you know, if you could psychoanalyze yourself a little bit here, uh, I, I I'm trying to understand. You know, what happened 
you know, between Ezra Klein 2006 and Ezra Klein 2007, you know, the the golden period uh, the American prospect. And, you know, current Ezra Klein, which seems to be much more, you know, centrist. And, and I know your answer is going to be, well, you know, I learned more about political vetoes and that sort of stuff. But is there any way in which this is, uh, you, you might think that this is coming from more sort of social, tribal, uh, you know, sources. Uh, you know, you've come into D.C., you've made new friends and that sort of thing. Because cause I, I, I start to suspect that that happens when you, you know, when you see some of these arguments change so dramatically from, you know, employer-sponsored insurance is, you know, the great evil. I mean, I, you know, the quotes from the American Prospect were so, you know, flamboyant in some ways and and then now it's like oh you know it's you know it's it's it is what it is you know so uh, yeah so i think that's a good question so i do not think actually that my opinions on healthcare have changed dramatically um like back then it may not it may be different in things that like you have like specifically seen but i was also like argued with by the left for not being on board enough with single payer and and uh, and a bunch of things and a bunch of things that other people wanted to do but I would say that something that changed for me is that I have, when in 2005, 2006, 2007 is sort of a period of time when I was doing policy blogging, but I had not really covered in great detail any policy fights. So I had a lot of theories and I had a lot of theories about what is better. And I also had a lot of like freedom to write about them because like there was no actual fight going on. And covering a few of these actually happening was a formative experience for me. Um, I, I recognize that I think your interpretation of me is that I just somehow went like native in DC and became like a like a democratic establishment blogger and I just don't want to piss anybody off. But actually, it's a lot more annoying for me to piss off the left than to piss off people in the democratic establishment. Like they don't sit around tweeting at my motivations all day. It's it's like they're they're much they're much um gentler about things. So like where this stuff comes from a real place where I want to see people have health insurance and I've come through like many years of reporting and researching and reading and trying to think about this to views about what is likeliest to work. Now, those views can be wrong. Um, one of the things I was thinking about when I was preparing for this conversation was it is true for me that if you could convince me that going all the way to Medicare for all was 20% likelier to pass than the version of healthcare that I like a little bit better, which is like an integrated system with a primary public insurer, but like some supplementary um, or uh, like a, like some private insurance choices that people can use. I would move to Medicare for all in two seconds. I actually, one thing that is true for me that I don't always think is true for other people is that I don't care that much about the differences between the plans that I think are better. What I care about is which plan is likeliest to actually get people healthcare insurance. And again, you can say, like, I don't know the answer to that. And I think that's probably true. But I also, in some ways, don't truly know the answer, given how many policy uncertainties are in these plans to which plan is better. So I spend a lot of my time trying to layer on, like, the reporting I've done on political institutions and the reporting I've done among people getting health insurance in public opinion, and then, like, the reporting I've done on policy to, like, come up with some synthesis and try to explain what that is. So I think that's the change. Like, I think you've seen me go through uh, a period of being extremely embedded in the political system. And my interpretation of that is not that I went native to politics. Um, in many ways, I like politics a lot less than I did when I moved to D.C., and it's part of why I left D.C. Um, but it is that I think I understand our political institutions better. 
and I'm more respectful of the ways in which they don't line up with the things that I wish were true. So then the, the, the other question I would ask is, you know, do, do you think that what you were doing in 2006 and 2007, that there's no value in that? Or, I mean, because, cause, you know, I, I run up against this weird buzzsaw, I feel like, in the discourse where uh, even though I'm on the left, I do try to stay very like technically competent, very like like wonky, if you will, like like this is a really I can win this argument as an optimal policy. And some people just sort of reject that and say, no, this is sort of left. Uh, this is not actually technical. There's not enough details. There's not enough complication, which they, you know, um, equate with with technical. And then you get some people who are just like and I feel like this was sort of the, the front of the of the whole interview. This is pointless. This is you know, you shouldn't do this. So, I mean, is your view that like I mean, pretty much up until you changed to Vox, like that your work, no, that was what you were doing was pointless. To um, well, I mean, about the Wonk blog, you're covering these details that's, I mean, are, are in a sense pointless in the in the way that you you seem to view it now, where you're sort of talking about politi- policies in and of themselves on the merits and that sort of thing. No, so one one, I don't, I I do not get as much chance to write nowadays. I just have more things that I do. And so some of the stuff that I got to do where I like dove into details of things before, I just don't, I'm not blogging all day and I miss it, like to be totally blunt. Um, But that said, uh, that's not a Fox change that happened at the Washington Post for me when I started managing. Um, But to your broader question there, I don't think that work is useless at all. In fact, I think of a lot of my work in journalism as popularizing that kind of work. I think that I've created a lot of attention to the people who do that. I think I've done a lot of it myself. And I think I've even created space that is being filled in part by people like you. Um, not I've not done that on my own. A lot of other people have been part of that project too. But the space for wonkish debate over these policies is so much larger and there's so much more attention on it than there used to be. I, for what it's worth, I never ever think the stuff you're doing is useless. I think there's a lot of value to it. The place where we argue is you say a lot of like quite unkind things about me. Um, I think that's shitty. I don't love that. Um, and it is a like a continuous like piece of work for me to like separate out my frustration with like the constant questioning of my motivations and like why I'm doing things, given that like I've devoted a pretty substantial fraction of my life to trying to get people health insurance from valid points that I think you and other people who are in um, discussion and debate with me are making. So when I come in at the beginning of this and I ask you why you don't bring some of these other things into your analysis, it isn't because I think what you're doing is valueless. Like you wouldn't be here if I thought what you were doing is valueless. It's because I think there's a lot of value to it and that there would be more if it had like more of this work integrated into it. Um, Again, that isn't to say one shouldn't have ideas ideas of their ideal that operate and coexist with ideas of what they think is possible right now. But I do think that the bridge I'm trying to build with you is to recognize that people who have come to a different position, whether or not they are wrong, are not doing it because they've like sold out to the man or because they're they're like pieces of shit who just want to stop single payer from happening because they don't love justice. It's because, you know, I I believe like very deeply this is important. It could fail. And so it's a huge responsibility to try to give it the best um, chance of success. Let me ask you the, the question I just said in reverse. If for some reason I was able to convince you, like we we just, you and I just had a great acid trip together. And at the end of it, you came out of it and said, you know what? You're right. Um, this other one would, would, would have a pretty, a much better chance of passing. Would that change anything for you? Would that, or is it just kind of like, that's not the way 
that's just not relevant. Like if, if, if there's a much larger chance of failure going with single payer, it's still worth doing, even if it's probably going to fail, even though another option would be a lot likelier to get a lot of people health insurance now. Well, so what, what would be the mechanism of failure, I guess? So the mechanism of failure would be that it gets proposed. So Bernie Sanders is president in 2021, and he like puts forward his Medicare for All bill, and it gets shot full of holes. And there are a million, 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 million ads about the huge middle-class tax increase that he eventually has to say is in there because it will be in there. Um, and they're like good arguments like from you and frankly at that point from me being like, no, you don't understand. It's going to like move over and it's going to be lower. And But it fails and a bunch of Democrats lose their seats and Bernie Sanders' presidency is hobbled. And now maybe like it moves the Overton window on this because at least like we had a really big national effort at this for the first time since 1948. But it fails and it like hurts health reform for years and years in the way that the 1994 failure hurt health reform for years and years. Like, that's what I see potentially happening. That is a thing I am afraid of. Uh-huh. So what what would be the alternative course of action in this? So the alternative course is that, and again, this is hypothetical. I have not convinced you of this. But if I could convince you that um, like X plan, Medicare Extra from CAP, or like even to, to use a plan that I think both of us like less than our ideal plans, Biden Care, which would leave a lot of people uninsured, but would insure a lot more people than are insured now. And like politics often is a game of half measures. Like if I could convince you that Biden care had a better than average chance of success, like a better than 50% chance of success. And these other plans were like very unlikely to succeed, like let's say lower than 10%. Would that change how you operate? Would that change how you talk about them, think about them? Would it just change what you think of yourself as doing in politics? Um, so if we're only doing percentages, so we're not doing like a, this one will for sure pass and this one will, will not, then, then, you know, obviously, you know, you do the utilitarian calculus and you, you know, you multiply the percentage by the, uh, by the benefits of, of the plan. So it's going to be, you know, very dependent on the precise, you know, percentage, uh, assumptions of which one's likely to pass. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I think there's a, at the point at which you can predict the future, there's a sort of, you can almost sort of do it mathematically, um, at that point. So, I don't know if we if we say Biden care is fifty percent and and single payer is ten percent. I probably still go single payer in that case because the flip side of Biden care, obviously, in in the long run, hypothetical is that it becomes even harder to do single payer. You know, the next time around, we get stuck in this path dependency and all that kind of stuff. So you know, you gotta you gotta factor that against it as well. And so, would we probably have a permanent three percent uninsured rate at that point? You don't um, think that it kind of builds on itself? I mean, one thing I do think is true is that one reason we're having a discussion to the left the, of the one we had in two thousand and ten is that Bernie Sanders has done, I think, great work moving the Overton window on that. But another reason is that I do think Obamacare pushes conversation to the left. Like more people have health insurance. Medicaid has worked out quite well. A lot of Democrats who thought you could do a hybrid plan and were not willing to like hear of anything aside from that recognize that you're probably going to have to do public insurance um, in, in a more straightforward way. And something that everybody who is trying to finance these plans says to me every time, and this is true for the Bernie Sanders people, it's true for the CAP people, that it created this huge amount of money that you can now put towards another plan. So if you're like, if you're folding things in, that's whatever it is, two, three trillion dollars that you don't need to raise anew. So to me, um, just as sort of Medicare and Medicaid also created ongoing expansions of what they were doing, um, Obamacare has like been, it's been helpful to move this to the left. It's much easier to see like how you take the next step. And I think it's one reason I'm also a little bit more 
uh, optimistic about moving forward incrementally uh, or, you know, even if it's big incremental steps, because I do think that there is at least some positive feedback on succeeding, whereas I think there was like literal negative feedback on 94. Like when 94 failed, it curtailed everybody's ambitions for a long time. And that wasn't just like a, it wasn't maybe a mental thing, but it just meant that like you talk to senators who were going to be crucial, like the answer was no. And like, so then the answer was no for a long time. And even Obamacare was a lot less than what had been tried before it. So like, I think of success as breeding success and failure as breeding failure. Yeah, I don't know. I have a somewhat different read of the the, the events from 2010 to present. I mean, my, my view is basically like erase Bernie Sanders from the 2016 race and we don't have any of this stuff. I mean, we don't even have we don't have Biden doing public option. We, and, you know, I don't know, maybe you could say, well, to some degree, Sanders success on the Medicare for all thing was based on the 2010. I don't, that seems that seems strange to me, but I I view this as being all, all of these like ambitious plans as being driven by Sanders, and 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 in fact, like the reason why we're getting these public options is to try to undercut Sanders. Like you know, I mean, like Kamala is a perfect example of this, right? Maybe I can take the Medicare for all mantle, and um, I guess they're all kind of in some ways going under the Medicare for all mantle, even Medicare extra and so on, and like so, I, I, that's how I see those things developing. It's like to undercut Bernie and to undercut his success in 2016, which I don't think was driven by Obama, but was driven by the fact that he was the only guy running against Hillary Clinton, you know, and had there was a stark contrast between left and center. That That's my read of it. Well, I think it's been, um, I'll let you have the last word on that. I think that's like been a good, I think we are at the very least uh, talking more to each other than than past each other, which I, I sometimes feel like on the internet. So I appreciate that that you took the time to do this. Um, I always, at the end of these, ask people for a couple books they recommend. So do you have three book recommendations for the audience? Oh, yeah. Your producer told me about this and then I forgot. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not, um, you know, I, I guess, you, you know, you go for the greats, right? Uh, a, a Theory of Justice by John Rawls. <laughs> which is my uh, Twitter avatar, though I have a somewhat idiosyncratic reading of that book. Um, you know, some greats, some, uh, you know, What is Property by uh, Proudhon, um, in which he determines that it's theft. That's a very good book. Um, you know, actually, there's a recent book that's not, uh, you know, sort of a, a great canonical book, but I, I forget what it's called. It's, uh, it's, it's a book about Robert Hale, so if you, maybe you just Google Robert Hale. He's got some books too, but I wouldn't read them. They're kind of boring. Um, but there's a book, uh, An Intellectual History of Robert Hale. That's really good. And, uh, you know, it's unrelated to healthcare, but if, if you're interested in, you know, uh, law and economics, it's a good one. I'll find the, we'll find the title of that and put it in the, in the show description. Uh, Matt Brunig, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, that's the show. Um, thank you to Matt Brunig for being here. I was thinking a bit in the days after this podcast, about that question he asked me at the end, which I, I can't say I expected, but it, it, it's interesting. It's so easy to think that your motivations and intentions and the reason you do what you do is as obvious to the world as it is to you, but of course it isn't. So maybe it's worth taking a moment to just talk about my approach to, to policy reporting in general and how it's evolved. Matt's right that when I got into this, when I was a blogger, when I hadn't covered something like Obamacare before, I did it a bit differently. I read a lot of papers and I had a bunch of ideas and I just argued for the policy outcome I thought was correct, right? I like something like the French system. And if you don't like something like the French system, you're wrong. And I more or less believe that even today. 
But then I covered um, the Affordable Care Act effort and the Dodd-Frank effort and the stimulus and dozens and dozens and dozens of others over time. And the thing that I kept seeing was that being right wasn't enough, that it was easy to come up with a system better than what we had, but to pass it into law kept failing, not just right now when I was reporting on it, but but all through history, that, that there was some reason that America didn't have the system other places did. It's why I started with that question for Matt. And so that's what led me to spend years really researching past efforts at healthcare reform, reporting on things like the failure of the 1994 Clinton reforms, and trying to understand what had happened in American politics that we had ended up in this place. Um, three things that I'd actually recommend if people want to retrace any of these steps or just think about it for themselves are Jill Quadagno has a great book called One Nation Uninsured on this. Um, Paul Starr uh, also has a great book called Remedy and Reaction, which is also about the history of health reform. Then there's a, a paper called It's the Institution Stupid, which offers, I think, a really important uh, political institutions, American structures take on this. It has been super influential in my thinking. But putting those together really changed um, how I thought about this work. Policy isn't to me now just about what is the right idea, but it's also about navigating your way through a system that is built to stop the right ideas from happening. I think about it a bit like climbing a mountain. Uh, Maybe in this case, you think about it as a mountain nobody's even summited before. One, you have to know where you want to go, right? You have to know you want to go to the peak. So like there are values and there is a, a policy ideal that has to be operative. But then there's real value in knowing what all those people who've tried to go up the mountain before you did. Some of them found routes that work, that get you higher than you would get on your own. Some of them found routes that fail. But if you just try to start from scratch, um, you're likely to get almost nowhere at all. And then you also have to think about what are the conditions right now on the mountain or to get out of the analogy in the country? What are the capacities that you have or that your political coalition has that maybe didn't exist before, be they technological tools, right? Ways to communicate strategies. Um, Is there something different about the actual policy situation in the country or the number of votes that you have? And it's putting all these things together that gets you some idea of, of how to get up there. Um, now, there's a, a good critique to be made of this, and Matt makes it in the in our podcast, which is in thinking so much about constraint and in thinking so much about what's happened before, it's easy to miss, one, things that other people haven't done, right? If you're only looking at the routes other people have tried to go up, maybe there's something nobody tried that would work. Um, two, things could have changed. There could be a route that didn't work at one other point, but it's cleared now for one reason or another. So it's always a balance between learning from the past and trying to understand what is different in the present. Um, It's why I think it's important to have conversations like this one. It's why it's important not to get totally caught in your habits. But I would also argue that it's always a balance between trying to learn from what's happened before and trying to understand what is possible right now. And that's why I think it's important to have conversations like this one. I'm not sure uh, if we convinced each other on too many points here, but it's always good to be pushed into what your blind spots might be and to try to see what somebody else's perspective might reveal. So thank you to Matt for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, 
wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.